Welcome to the Gospel Care Podcast. My name is Jason Kovacs, and I'm one of your hosts. Today, I have another conversation with my friend, Chris Davis. Chris is a pastor, author, and an abuse survivor. Today in our conversation, we talk about trauma and abuse in the church, and Chris shares his personal story of surviving abuse. This is a very important issue for us to discuss, especially in light of the Southern Baptist Convention and everything that's happening there, and so many other churches and denominations today. So thanks for joining us on this special and very serious and important episode. Well, thanks, Chris, for uh, joining me here. And uh, it, you know, one of the things that uh, is dear to both our hearts uh, in ministry is is the issue of abuse and trauma, and and really speaking out and addressing it uh, because it, it, it's something that just shouldn't should not exist in the church, especially. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we're doing in, in September with the gospel care collective is we're, we're doing an event at, at TGC, a panel on trauma and abuse in the church and, and how the church can respond. Uh, I think it's just a conversation we need to, we need to have, we need to keep having, it's hard, it's, it's messy. Um, but I know, again, this is something you and I have talked a lot about over the years uh, and is very personal. Um, both have different, our, our own stories, but you, know, you wrote an article on TGC uh, a number of years ago now, and uh, and, and I, I, I thought it could be helpful uh, just to to talk a little bit about that uh, and, and the issue because uh, it, it's it's it is a prevalent it, it's becoming a, more and more of an issue today in the church, which in some ways is is heartbreaking. It's devastating to read these stories, but it, on the other hand, the fact that these stories are being told is so important. That's I I, I live in that tension. Like I don't want to hear yeah. another story, right? I don't want to read another story, but at the same time, I'm thinking these stories need to be told, and these abuses need to be exposed because people need to heal. People need to know they're not alone. I first became a lead pastor in 2005. So well before me too, or church too, but the elders of the church I pastored disclosed as we were talking about potentially going there from, from Minneapolis where we were together. Um, they disclosed that there had been abuse, um, continual abuse and cycles of abuse and cover-up at the church for decades. And like spiritual abuse? No, no. physical, emotional, and sexual abuse okay. uh, perpetrated by the pastor's son. Mm. Um, and so... <clears throat> Now, as there's so much more teaching about this, you you could almost like I could ask you, Jason, why don't you write the script of how that happened for all those decades? And you could probably fill in the blanks. This is not just this church. Um, this is so the the story of so many churches where uh, before mandatory reporting was a thing, um, you see this 
emergence of something unspeakable in your midst. And you think, but we're a church. We're the people of God. We're we're supposed to be the holy ones and we live different than the world. And this data point does not line up with our sense of who we are. And so yeah. we call it an outlier and we throw it out, yeah. right? Yeah. And what that looks like is the leaders of the church saying, this is terrible. We're going to talk. We're going to give a good talking to, to this guy. And this is not going to happen again, mm. even though what happened was illegal. Yeah. And um, I think it was Micah Edmondson on the Caring Well series said, if you walked into your church and found a dead body, you wouldn't call the elders, you would call the police because mm -hmm. a crime has been committed in your church, right? Yeah. And that is such a helpful, stark and jarring, but helpful yeah. metaphor to say, yeah, yeah, if a crime has been committed here, then we need to call the police. But like so many churches, this this congregation did not do that for mm. 20 years and um until they did and i came about 10 years after that abuse had been exposed and the church had gone through a season of healing and repentance and i had the <clears throat> the privilege of um learning under steve and celesta tracy founders of Mending the Soul Ministries, who were, uh, Celesta was the contracted therapist to hear the stories of the young ladies in our church who had been abused by the pastor's son. I was 27 years old, as I shared. I didn't know my right hand from my left. I could preach, and that was about it. Mm. And so to have Stephen Celesta's mentors of ours was just priceless. Um, I would highly recommend their book. The second edition just came out, Mending the mm -hmm. Soul, Understanding yeah. and Healing Abuse. And they facilitate not only, it's not just a book, they have a workbook that goes with it that you can walk through your own abuse journey in community with others. It's a phenomenal ministry that has gone worldwide. Um, and they've specifically taken it to hard places like um, East Africa, where uh, sexual violence has been part of the warfare in in the war-torn areas of East Africa for decades. Um, and so to have them, and you know what the interesting thing was, I asked Steve one time early on, as I'm just, I'm like a baby dropped into the deep end of the pool here. <laughs> I had known about one, my, my experience with abuse to that point, or so I thought, um, was the episode of Different Strokes, where one of uh, Arnold's friend um, yeah. is, is be, I'm, I'm not laughing at this, I'm just, the, the 80s is making me yeah. smile. But, you know, they would do those thematic episodes on those shows, mm -hmm. kind of like the after school program feel to them. Yeah. And there's one where one of his friends was uh, spent a lot of time with this guy who, I don't know, is like model airplanes or something. And mm -hmm. 
and it turns out he was molesting the boy and and that just brought that issue to light yeah. uh there was that and then when i was growing up there was one time where somebody in our kind of a similar story a tv repairman in our church it turned out he had groomed a boy a young man and had had molested him mm-hmm. um and and he was taken to jail mm-hmm. um he was imprisoned and that was uh, that those were the only two exposures I had to the fact that abuse was a was a thing or existed, mm-hmm. and so now to get pulled into the mending the soul orbit and to read the book and just the tragic uh, plethora of stories about mm-hmm. abuse in the church and not just abuse but cover up yeah. and this dynamic that when and these are you know survivors started to become drawn to our church because it became clear this is it. we're trying to create a safe place here we're trying to normalize being in process and that's what when when I sat down with Steve and said Steve what can what can I do to help create a safe space a safe environment in this church he said number 1 you have to be okay with people being in process mm, that's good. because tra- trauma does crazy things to people And, and Jason, I'm, this was not a big church Mm -hmm. and, um, under a hundred people. And there was one person who, um, could not be in when we did communion because of her own abuse being adjacent to communion. Mm -hmm. There was one person who, when I would quote certain Bible verses and he gave me a fair warning, this would happen, would just stand up and leave because his mother had used those Bible verses to convince his father to beat him. And, and he said, whenever you quote those verses, I'm just going to need to go or else I'll probably vomit. And I don't want to do that in the service. So, so not from a book, not from a movement, not from a hashtag, but from people, traumatized people in a space where we normalize talking about abuse um, I got to to see in real time what trauma responses were like. And we tried to create the elders. We tried to create a context to say, you're welcome here and whatever you have to do. And, and please teach us, help us understand how can we, and like one survivor said, you know, you don't have to preach a whole sermon on abuse. Just as you're listing people off, Pray for those who have lost a loved one. Pray for those who have who long to be married and are not married. Um, pray for those who are suffering with depression. She said, when you're when you're listing out those people, just include us mm. so that we know mm. that we're seen here. Yeah. Just include those who have suffered under abuse or neglect. Yeah. and and just so we know that we're on your heart as you preach. Um, things like that emerged over time and, and we sought to keep Jesus at the center, but also create this awareness that those who are survivors are welcome and that your story can be told here. Wow. What what, would that every church, every pastor asks (laughs) that question you asked, how can we be a safe place for, for survivors? 
There are advantages to ignorance, Jason. I was 27 years old. I didn't know anything. And so I was, I was purely like, just tell me what to do. How do I help? I mean, how many churches though are, have yet to, or have not asked that have just don't have the space or, uh, you know, and, and, and the, uh, and what that has created and what, what that communicates. So that, I mean, that's so significant whether you were, you know, doing it out of desperation, <laughs> the providence of God uh, or not. Well, the one, um, and people can look up the, the gospel coalition, the, the title of the article is uh, leaders talk about power uh, to help the vulnerable or something like that. And um, there's a, the, the one quote that sticks with me, and I say this not to relish in my own writing, but just I, the it it took. This is not an exaggeration. It took about four months to write that article, yeah. um, because I I talked about it was it was hard to go back to our own church experience and and to see the wreckage that the abuse and cover up of another had left. Mm. But then it was also excruciating to talk through my own story. And which let, let me just say this quote and then I'll I'll share that part. As I was thinking and in the midst of this, I had moved to I was here in Northern Virginia, and one of our church members was he's since retired, was a colonel in the Air Force, and he was tasked with overseeing their response to abuse in the Air Force. And so I sat down with him to say, what are your best practices? What are you learning? What can, what advice can we give? And tried to, try to glean from what they've, they've sought to learn. Um, talk to people like Boz, who's in this space, you know, uh, mm-hmm. as a lawyer and, and others. Um, but at the heart, you know, you can have all the techniques in the world, but at the heart, it's, are we here to love individuals like Jesus did, or are we here to protect an institution? And and the word I said to that is, when the time comes for you to address the abuse that will cause upheaval in your community, remember that the weight of your advocacy for the vulnerable is much less than the millstone Jesus promises for those who sacrifice the weak. Mm. I believe the church has to be willing to say, let the institution die. Look, I'm a Southern Baptist pastor. I mean, we there has to be a willingness to say, if if the SBC has to die, let it die. The mission of Jesus will not stop. Yeah. Um, if if this whole thing cannot sustain churches in which Praying on the vulnerable is called out and mm-hmm. dealt with. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think the SBC has to die. I think reform could happen, but um, but that's above my pay grade. I'm not not on that task force. Um, but but churches, because most of your listeners aren't going to be denominational leaders. Churches and individuals have to decide mm. the upheaval that calling this out inevitably will create yeah. is less significant than what I will 
stand before Jesus and have to give an account for on that final day. Right. Yeah. It's not, you know, advocate and face the pushback or the upheaval or do nothing. It's doing nothing is, well, now, now you're standing before Jesus and, and having to give an account for how you, how you neglected the needs of the vulnerable. That's, that's really telling. Cause I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, well, we're, we'll let other people do that work. We'll like, we'll kind of live in the ignorance of what's possibly happening and, and may very well and, and actually is happening in our own community and hope, hope that, you know, that, that gets us by. But I think, well, yeah, what, you, what you're, you, what you're saying, I'm hearing you say is, whoa, you know, we have to really consider what Jesus says above the vulnerable, which, which, includes the abused and and those who have been been neglected and uh, and that's that is central to his heart and this is not just psychologists or therapists getting around and dictating to the church how they're supposed to act think of in second samuel 13 that horrific tale of amnon and tamar mm -hmm. um in which after amnon um, uh, I don't know if we want to use the R word, but what, we'll just use it. You can decide if you want to edit this. Um, I'm just so sensitive because I know it's so painful, but it doesn't help to, to backpedal what it was. After Amnon rapes Tamar, it says that when King David hears about this, verse 21, when King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. And then that's it. And a fat lot of good that King David's anger did for Tamar, right? right? Because because Amnon was the next in line. He was the heir apparent. And it would be to the upheaval of the system for yeah. David to say, right. um, yeah. you, you are disinherited or you, you cannot be king. You have proven yourself. Right. Um, and of course, this is after David's own rape of Bathsheba. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't at me. Um, yeah. Where where the outworking of David's sexual sin um, and and sexual um, abuse toward Bathsheba is played out then in his own family, not only in Amnon but in Absalom. Mm -hmm. And so, in that context. You have David's silence, mm -hmm. which is absolutely crushing because yeah. Tamar herself says if to, you know, as her brother um, is, is attacking her, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And to, to ask the church, can the church be the place where people carry our shame? Or will we be like David who sinfully was silent yeah. and therefore, um, you know, Tamar just shrivels right. under this. It's We would call it gaslighting now because Absalom yeah. has his own agenda and he, um, and he keeps it cool because he's got his he he leverages this even in his advocacy quote unquote 
yeah. leverages it for his own agenda. Yeah. Good. Well, David, David uh, got angry. It's like, well, isn't that enough? And it's like, well, that's a start. Yes, be angry at sin. Be angry at abuse. Be like, we probably need to get more angry. Yeah. At the abuse that is that is prevalent and and exists. But but let's not stop at our anger. Let that anger lead to action and advocacy and change and reform. Um, Amen. That's, you know, as I think like some people would say, well, Hey, well, I, like we acknowledge it. We got angry. Like we're yeah. not denying it. We're not, you know, we're not being silent, but, well, what, but we're not going to ask him to step down or we're not going to whatever right. it might be. Yeah. At the end of yeah. the day, are we, who are we really protecting? Is it the institution or is it the person? And, uh, yeah, I think that's a powerful, powerful thing that we have to reckon with. Tell us a little bit more of your, your story and journey. Yeah. Uh, Cause I know it, this, this became very personal for you. Um, it did. What's remarkable to me is that all of this was happening after the fact of my own experience of abuse. And I, I probably said a thousand times to survivors and others now, I've never experienced abuse or or that type of thing, which at one level is accurate if you if you say I've never experienced the precise thing that you have experienced. Um, but what I went on to describe in the um in the TGC article and then later world uh I, I contacted World magazine and they did they had written some articles about this perpetrator that I reached out and said, I think I'm, I'm ready to talk as well. Um, I was the, the place it came to me. I was washing the dishes late one night, listening to a podcast during the me too, uh, season, uh, the start of the me too movement. And it was a slate podcast with three survivors from Harvey Weinstein. And they were each describing kind of the, the ways he manipulated them into ending up naked in front of him, which was just not, they just wanted to be a screenwriter or an actress or, <laughs> or a director or something. They didn't ask for any of this. And yet he was Harvey Weinstein. And who who am I to say no to that and that kind of thing? And 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 as I can't remember exactly what point, but as one of them was explaining the dynamic that led to her abuse by Weinstein, I just had this um callback, this recall to my own experience of being standing naked in front of somebody who is a significant figure in my world. And I literally, the room started spinning. I can see myself in the kitchen now. And I I had to hold on to the island and to the, the counter to stabilize myself because it was this revelation that I was entirely not anticipating. And Jason, my timeline may, I, I can't remember exactly what the timeline was, but it was either that night or the next day that I emailed you. And I just want your listeners to hear 
because you are an old friend, because you had been in the the space of uh, uh, being a counselor, you valued the stories of survivors, and because you also knew this person and and the the general scenario in which this happened, I just needed some clarity. And and I cannot thank you enough for simply being a safe person. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 just want to encourage all those who hear this that they can be that stabilizing presence in the life of another that that might they might feel that other person might feel safe disclosing their own story of abuse mm-hmm. because you show up non-judgmentally you show up ready to listen and to engage and inclined to believe um and and I, I know the the hashtag believe women can be troublesome if there's not a due process in the middle of it which there needs to be but if but your if your first instinct is to say i see you i hear you i believe you and let's uh let's work through this so i i was reminded that was 2017 i was reminded of um of a time when i was uh out of college i was in ministry and through my um association with uh my home church in atlanta uh, the church i was working at before i went to seminary which was in southern west virginia we took a group down um, to my pastor's anniversary. Uh, I think it was 20th or 25th. He's, he's, he's still there now. It was such a, mm-hmm. a faithful ministry. He had been very impacted in the eighties by Paul Pressler, who is with Paige Patterson, one of the architects of the conservative resurgence mm-hmm. or the takeover. If you're on the other side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in that context, um, you know, Paul Pressler was this, it was the closest thing you get to a hero in, mm-hmm. in, in church world, right? He was just this larger than life figure. And in the time after the service, he paid attention to me. And in fact, asked me at the end of that, if I would accompany him on a trip that he was going to be, he heard that I went to Samford university, he was going to be in Birmingham and, and said, I always like to have somebody to help drive me around, help me haul the books um, and sell it and just just to be a helper. And I was just blown away. My dad was with me and we just looked at each other like, is this really happening? And this, this is part of the dynamic. This is why I wanted to write not about sexual abuse, but about power in the in the TGC article, because I think as evangelicals, like, look, I, I was ready that that sex is a problem, right? Like mm-hmm. the, the wrong use of sex is a problem. The wrong use of money is a problem. All the stories you hear about pastors gone bad is is usually about sex or money. Yeah. Um, but look at the the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Like mm-hmm. there, there was some questionable money stuff, but largely it was not about sex and money. It was about power. Yeah. And and this is the one that's a little harder to pin down. Like at what point is someone being spiritually abusive, leveraging their position as a spiritual leader, leveraging verses in the Bible, 
to manipulate someone into doing something because God is on my side. And how can you say no to God? Mm-hmm. And if you watch Spotlight, the movie, that was the the oh, crushing, crushing line from that movie. Like my priest was basically like God. And how can you say no to God? Yeah. And that's spiritual abuse in a in a nutshell. And and I did go to Alabama. I just thought I'd pick the winning lottery ticket because I got to hang out with this towering figure of the conservative mm-hmm. resurgence. And the first night, you know, I, I go into this in the that article and the world article. Um, the first night, he says, now, I went to a prep school. He was, you know, high class, Ivy League, that kind of thing. Um, he said, I, I think of the the shower is like a, a boy's locker room. And, um, and so, you know, in tomorrow morning, uh, I, just to conserve time and, and water, uh, you take a shower and then you hop out and I'll hop in. It was just very like, like, of course, this is just a normal thing that somebody who's, and we were staying in the same hotel room together and it was just presented as normal. And because of his stature, because of his largesse in our, religious community. I was just like, okay, well, sure. If you're Paul Pressler and you're saying that to me, then that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the 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 point at the Slate podcast I was listening to where one of the survivors said, but he was Harvey Weinstein and he was saying this. So how could it be wrong? Yeah. And 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 so I was like, okay. And so the next morning we do this and and there I am. And Jason's look, some guys, let's be honest, you know, you go to college and some guys on the dorm, they're just naked guys. They just don't think twice about walking mm-hmm. up and down the hall naked or hopping out of the shower. And you hear all these stories of, of dudes who are just in a non-abusive way, are just super comfortable with <laughs> being mm-hmm. naked around everybody. I was not one of those guys. And <clears throat> so I hop out of the shower and, and from the night before, I, I should also say, you know, I had met the judge at um at this event um at, at my home church and then we'd corresponded a couple of times and then we we're at this thing so i'd been around him a total of like seven hours right mm-hmm. and 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 in the evening uh before before bedtime the first night he just said chris i love you hand on my shoulder i love you you are so special to me and he just brings me in for this very long hug and i'm like i'm a hugger I'm cool with hugs, but a little weird, a little odd. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the next morning when I do my thing and I hop out of the shower and I, per instructions from the night before, he was going to hop into the shower and he just stands there and starts talking. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I thought the point of this was like water conservation or Mm -hmm. like, what was the idea here? And why are we both standing here naked? Why are we talking? And so I have a towel in my hand. So I kind of covered myself up and he looks down and he says, I can see that, that you're not comfortable being naked around me. And I was just like, Hmm, (laughs) I'm 24 years old. This is not, this is not uh, illegal categorically. It's just very odd. And, uh, and that pattern continued, um, and of course, yeah, we stood there talking for like five minutes. As, in I, as I say in the article, like I have no recollection of what was said in that conversation. 
because I was, I would, my prefrontal cortex was not functioning anymore. I was back in the yeah. medigula. What's the Am- name of amygdala? the amygdala? I was there in the lizard brain, you know, just like, what the heck is going on here? And um, even uh, to be honest, in in the in the spirit of paying attention, like as I pay attention, I feel anxiety right now, mm-hmm. because what what are you, what are you supposed to do? I'm in this very awkward situation. Yeah. Uh, he's not touching me. He's not pressing himself on me or anything. But it's very confusing. But he's Paul Pressler, yeah. and that's the dynamic. So just the two things to take away from this um, is number one. It's like it is hard to quality uh, to quantify the the power someone has in our lives because of who they are, what they've accomplished, how the community views them, all these dynamics. Um, and that's why leaders have to be self-aware of their own power and how they carry themselves. Yeah. Um, and secondly, it took me 15 years to realize this was not just odd, it was wrong. It was abusive. And it was it was grooming toward greater abuse, which we know now, or he has been allegedly accused of um of actual sexual assault um in, in the court of law. And so it took 15 years, and during which time I was a, a pastor seeking to provide a safe place for survivors. It's not like I was unfamiliar with the dynamics of abuse. And so when we see stories publicly of someone who realizes 15, 20, even 30 years later, oh, this happened to me, that we should not be quick to discount it because our brains have a way of just packing that information and that experience into a very safe and manageable box so that we can keep living our lives and not slow down to say, what just happened? Yeah, man, I'm so sorry, brother. Thank you for sharing that. If if the 24-year-old version of yourself recognized what was happening or, or you know, enough to say something happened and you went to the older version of yourself who's, who's who now knows what you know, what do you think you would, what would you say to that, uh, that person? Find somebody safe to talk to about this. And that's what I talked to you. Um, I talked to Bob, I talked to Steve Tracy. Steve Tracy said, why don't you call Boz and talk to him about it? And, um, and I talked to, uh, eventually talk to a therapist about it. So find safe people to disclose this. Pay attention to what's going on in you as you remember these things, because your feelings and your responses matter. They don't get to drive the bus. They don't get to drive your, you know, we're not going to take a torch down to Texas and, and, you know, burn anything down literally. Um, but, um, but we have to give our experiences our that, that part of ourselves that experience that we have to give that voice 
So I would say journal a lot, get a feelings wheel, write out the emotions you're feeling about this. Honestly, that writing the article was its own form of redemptive response that I wanted to see that this story didn't just sit there inert. I wanted to see it do something. The The statement that God never wastes pain. And I didn't want this pain to be wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, first and foremost, find safe people, talk to them, um, pay, keep paying attention to, to what you're feeling and what you want. Keep writing through that. And, and in that context, um, show up with Jesus and and really sit with what what does Jesus feel about this? Um, because as we said earlier, Jesus was very serious about those who would leverage their power, whether it's Matthew 23, his woes to the scribes and Pharisees, whether it's the the one who would cause one of these little ones to stumble, um, the millstone around the neck and cast into the sea, like he did not mince words when it came to the abuse of power. And he didn't start with Rome, which would have been the the easy target here of you know this this uh, highly oppressive Roman Empire. He starts with the religious leaders around him and their own perpetration of abuse their own leveraging their power to get what they want, uh, them being the the shepherds that Ezekiel castigated in Ezekiel 34 and 37 to call, or 34, sorry, to, to call them to account for feeding on the sheep instead of feeding the sheep and to, to truly tap into the anger of God at abuse. I, I closed the article in TGC about uh, prophetic outrage because outrage has become a, an industry. Twitter runs on outrage. <laughs> as, yeah. as much as I enjoy being on Twitter, I, I have to know, I have to stand aside and say, I know what they're doing. I got on CNN.com the other day and it was, it said, um, video of husband flying in first class while he makes his wife and kids fly in coach. And I think CNN, is this truly news or are you just, are you just putting this in the most visible place of the front page to really get me worked up? Because you know, that outrage will get the most immediate response from, you know, brain science tells us that, right? So, so we have a lot in the, in the world of outrage, we have a lot we're working against because because that's how the internet works. And when you go back to the prophets and you see what really torqued the Almighty, mm. what what got him in the depths of his, anthropologically speaking, in the depths of his gut, what fired him up with the most anger? Yeah. It's the abuse of the weak. Mm. And And so I would just tell that young man, be seen by God. Know him as um, El Roy, the God who sees. Yeah. Know him as the one who is angered. Yeah. 
and not just angered and does nothing like David, but angered and will act. And know that whatever happens with your advocacy and your voice on this, Mm -hmm. that God will have the final word of judgment Mm -hmm. and that God will not, God will not look over this and it will either be addressed through the repentance of the abuser as, as he looks to Christ to bear the weight of his sin or her sin, or it will be burned. It will be expressed in the fires of hell. You know, Jason, it's interesting. Um, there's a survivor that Rachel and I've ministered to for years. And, and she is really, you could say she's deconstructed her faith, but it, it's interesting um, she told me once, she said, I'm not even sure if I believe there's a God anymore, but there has to be a hell mm. because there has to be somewhere where my abuser will give an account mm. for what mm. he continues to gaslight me over and pretend like it did not happen. Yeah. And I know in my body it happened. Mm. And so to 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 be seen by God in the pages of scripture and to know that God is just and he is he is judge and he will not allow these abuses to go unpunished. Amen. No, oh, that's so good. Well, oh, thanks Chris. I well, and I, I again I want to thank you for sharing here you know m- more of your story again uh because you don't have to. You don't you didn't have to share that. You didn't have to talk about it again. Um you know, the, the, there's, we can move beyond that, but I think the people that, that, that are listening, hopefully will be encouraged to know there some, some who may have a similar experience or some have other experiences of abuse. My hope is that, uh, that they'll feel seen, um, because so. of your courage and, and, uh, faith in the Lord and trust in, in our God who, will judge justly uh, and who is angry about these things and, um, and cares deeply. And thank you, Jason, that, that means a lot. And I do hope that somebody is helped by this. Um, it just to make explicit what, what may not have been. The other thing I would say to that young man is call this what it is. Mm. Tell the truth about what happened to you. Yeah. Th- that's the that's the insidious nature of gaslighting, of um, minimizing, of sweeping under the rug for the sake of the institution. Yeah, is that is that someone else is lying about your experience? And if you think about the power we were given as humans before the fall to rule over the world, the first way that that power was expressed by Adam in the garden was by naming things mm-hmm. by naming yeah. the animals that was yeah. that was his exercise of a divine authority given yeah. to him as an image bearer um and when we name reality there is a power in that mm-hmm. and and i've experienced so many times when i feel like in the fetal position over things when i name n- I named this happened to me. This person did this to me. And I am angry that they did that. 
I feel, I feel it right now. I feel my spine stiffen and I, I sit tall because there's something empowering about saying this happened and I won't let anyone say that it didn't. And so to that survivor listening to this, name what happened to you, call it what it is. And, and part of being around safe people is they may help you with this. One of the uh, a fellow survivor and interacting with this years later, this just happened within the last maybe six or nine months. When they read my story in World, um, and I just kept using the language of grooming, she just gently suggested, she didn't name it for me, but she gently suggested that I might, um, she said, you're entitled to call yourself an abuse survivor here. What was done to you was abuse. Because I even wanted to minimize and kind of soft pedal it just by calling it grooming. Well, it, it would have led to abuse. Um, and she said, no, this was abusive. Just call it, not, not like demanding, but but inviting right. me to call it what it is. Yeah. So, so we exercise some measure of power over this when we mm. name it for what it is and name what we feel and so that it's all out in the open, we can bring it before God, we can bring it before safe and trusted brothers and sisters, we can be seen in it, and we don't have to hide in shadows and allow shame to eat our lunch. So good. What I, I know there's so much we could we could talk about. And maybe, you know, just related to this is I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. As a as someone in the SBC, um there's this temptation, you know, no matter what circle you're in to, to when we expose these things to then just burn it all down. You yeah. Know, like it's the institution does not need to be protected. In fact, it, not only does it not need to be protected, but it needs to be taken down, not reformed, but, but destroyed and, yeah. you know, resurrected somewhere else. Maybe um, what I, I, I just, I'm curious your thoughts on that and how, I mean, I, and again, every, different people are going to approach this different ways, but I think that's a, a challenge that we find our, a challenge that we have before us as those that care about abuse, care about those who've experienced abuse, abuse survivors dealing, working and bringing healing um, to, to, to those experiencing trauma. Um, how do we do that in a way um when we're still part of the very inst maybe part of the very institution that that perpetrated the hurt. The caveat I'll give to this is that institutional thinking is not my forte. So take all of this with a grain of salt. Um, I I don't check the box of a strategic thinker or or those kinds of things. I'm nines are gut people and I I lead from the gut. So for better or for worse. Um, so the first thing to someone who says, burn it all down, the first thing I say is I get it. That makes absolute sense to me that that's, that that's what you want to do. Hmm. Um, I see you in that anger. I see you in that, you know, one of the worst nightmares you can have is, <clears throat> when you're screaming and, and it's mute, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And 
so many survivors feel like that. We have been screaming about this and nothing's being done. Um, Krista Brown has been screaming about this for decades, yeah. decades. And, and the very database she was saying, first step, create a database of credible allegations. And, and then we found that there was a database of credible, credible allegations and they were being used against survivors instead of for them. So there is rot in the system. And I talk to close friends, whether they're over small churches, all the way up to, you know, the president of the convention about can this house be saved? And for those who say it really can't, I just want to say, I'm I'm not going to argue with you. Um, you may be right. And I see you and I totally, it makes total sense that that's your impulse. And I'm not going to minimize that. I also know some of the people involved with the implementation task force. And I respect them. They are good people. They are, they love survivors. They hate abuse. They want to see transformation happen. Um, and so, um, and, and one of the impulses I'm most impressed by is one of one of these on the implementation task force said, "I am not expecting abuser survivors to be to applaud me for what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I <clears throat> I hope they'll see that I care. I'm doing this for the next generation, so this doesn't happen again in our churches. I'm not doing this to get brownie points." Um, or to get, you know, retweets on Twitter for, for my advocacy. I'm doing this because I want this to be a safe convention. So I applaud that work and I, I hope it does well and I hope it is redemptive. But I also, I, I'm at the place and this is very, like I said, I'm not, I'm not a great institutional thinker. Um, but I would like all of us to release, so in the SBC, to release our grip on either historically or experientially what we've, what the SBC has been, and to say, as we read the scriptures, as we read of Paul writing to all these different churches that he planted, but is not pastoring at the time, as we read of him sending Timothy to this church and Titus to this church, what kinds of infrastructure are biblically responsible? Mm -hmm. Is it is it biblically? And this will <clears throat> this will be heresy to some Baptists, um, but because we're Baptists, they can't kick me out for having you know <laughs> these ideas. <laughs> right. It's it's the nature of yeah. the issue. Um, is it biblical to be in missional collaboration with other churches without responsibility, mm -hmm. without accountability? Mm -hmm. Those are those are the gut level questions that I'm wrestling through, and I have my own burgeoning thoughts about this that I'll, I'll keep to myself because they're very nascent. But 
that that is the question driving me right now is because it's so easy to kick the kick the can just kick the ball down the field to the next person and not and say it's not my problem or to quote if we can go pop culture to uh to go spider-man and when he doesn't stop the thief from taking the guy's money who would, the guy would stiffed him you know and and he doesn't stop the thief and the guy's like you could have stopped him and he says i, I fail to see why that's my problem there's just too many people in the SBC over decades who have said, I fail to see how that's my problem. Um, and so, so I just, I would invite us, especially pastors and denominational leaders hearing this to say, um, let's go back to the scriptures. Let's immerse ourselves in the book of Acts in first and second Timothy and first and second Corinthians. And, and, immerse ourselves in the kind of authority that Paul wielded um, and the the type of responsibility he expected churches to have with one another. And, um, you know, just, just like we can idolize autonomy. We can idolize our independence mm-hmm. to the hurt of the of the vulnerable in our midst. And so even if, even if, you know, Baptists by nature are autonomous, but what would it look like for us to have self-imposed responsibility and accountability with other churches? Mm-hmm. What would it look like for us to say, look, we're going to do our best to pr- protect the vulnerable in our midst but if we get out of line, we're asking you to confront us about that. Yeah. And we're giving you actually some traction, some teeth to that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the question that burns in my soul. Because, mm-hmm. Jason, if there were a perfect denomination out there, we would all go to it. You know, as soon as you think, right. you know what, forget it. I'm just going to become Anglican. And then, mm-hmm. and then you realize there's a hashtag ACNA2 movement, right? Right. And, I think, I mean, every, I, I, I would venture to say every denomination is probably facing some, you know, exposure, you know, of, right. of abuse. It seems like to me, you know, you, you look around and it's, it's not just in the, uh, the conservative complementarian spaces that we're seeing abuse. That's right. It's like there, there's why wild abuse happening in egalitarian spaces yeah you know, um bill hybels <laughs> like it's it's a heartbreaking story egalitarian church probably in, yeah. in america yeah and uh and so yeah because it's, it's just, about it's about power ultimately it's about power yeah, yeah i think i think you're right yeah yeah thank you brother oh thank you so much chris this is this this is helpful, um, and again, sorry, I didn't have a solution. Sorry, I didn't have a silver <laughs> bullet. Well, I think we're we're. This is one of those places where, yeah, we have to we have to navigate um, in community by faith and listen and learn and be humble, be bold. As I, you know, I think I, I like what you said earlier. You know, to those that that have a hard time with us speaking, you know, like for instance, we're, we're, we're doing this event at TGC uh, in, in the fall 
And I know there, there are those that have a lot of criticism about you know, TGC and, and, um, and so to do an event on trauma and abuse in the church at TGC, yeah. you know, can ring hollow for a lot of folks. Uh, yeah. so, you know, but I, I love what you said earlier, like, let's seek to be humble and under and, and, and recognize that that makes sense for some people that, that that would be hard. And yeah. We can listen, we can learn, we can, um, uh, we don't, we don't have to, um, we don't, we don't, we don't have to, uh, be at odds, so to speak. Uh, but we, we can, we can care, love one another in the midst of this as we're all learning uh, and speaking, uh, out against abuse and, uh, speaking yeah. for those that need help and healing. Uh, and we're in this together. So, yeah. 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 Well, brother, your partnership and friendship in this work is, even though it's from the other coast, um, I just value it so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gospel Care Podcast. In the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that we will be hosting a special event at the Gospel Coalition Conference this year in Indianapolis, Indiana on September 27th. We'd love for you to join us. The information on the event is at traumainformedchurch.co. Again, that's traumainformedchurch.co. We're going to have a panel of experts talking about abuse and trauma in the church and how we as a church can respond. So we'd love to have you join us there and continue this critical conversation around trauma and abuse, an issue that should not be, should not exist in the church today. So thanks for joining us on this episode. God bless.